My provocative intro this morning is this. The last thing I want is a king. The last thing in the world I want is a king. Think about why I would say that. Not just because I'm an American and have a history. The last thing I would want is a king unless there were a king who had nothing to gain from me who was kind, gracious, perfectly righteous, fair, just, equitable, seeking the good of his people. Did I say merciful? Apart from those things, the last thing in the world I would want is a king. We've seen little previews recently in our world of people who have a taste of power and begin acting like tyrants but I won't mention anything in politics. And then there's Jesus. Jesus is called the King of Kings. And not only because he has ultimate authority, he could have ultimate authority and be a tyrant, but he's the King of Kings because he's the ultimate Christ, which means King. He's the ultimate Messiah. He is the one who is the king. How about this? Who is also, as a king, referred to as the good shepherd. Caring, concerning, again, nothing for him to gain. But he's gracious and compassionate. The gospel, according to Matthew, along with all the other gospel accounts, quite honestly, are designed to show us that you would be right if you were drawn to that king. Because he's, because he's different from all of the other kings. He truly, earnestly, genuinely has your protection, your provision, your care in mind as the ultimate good shepherd. And so what we're going to do this morning is be reminded that while the last thing we might want is a king, if we're talking about King Jesus, the Messiah, he actually is exactly the one we're waiting for. He's actually the one we're drawn toward like no one else. In fact, how about this? It makes sense that we wouldn't want any other kings because they're all broken, but he's not. And so if you have a Bible, you can join me in the ninth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. The good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the King, according to Matthew, and Matthew will even be in our account. So we're in the ninth chapter. We're going to look at the first 17 verses. And sort of like last week, we're going to be able to see three historic accounts. So three scenes or three historic accounts that show Jesus' power, they, we, we, we see his ability, we see his willingness, we see his love and kindness and compassion, we see his sternness against those who would want to hurt the sheep or the people of his kingdom. Uh, in other words, these texts are designed to impress you. These texts are designed to, to have you see Jesus for who he really is and to be drawn to him, to want to trust him. And then to want to worship him because he's worthy of our worship. So that's what we'll do this morning. I hope you're ready for it. I certainly am. Uh, It's going to be great. Really some great texts, some great pointed texts, encouraging texts that will be able to send us out of here with a better focus um, and more clarity about why we're called Christians. So we won't pre-read it for the sake of time. We're just going to go ahead and jump in with the first historic account, the healing of one who is called a paralytic or a paralyzed person. Look there with me, if you would, in verse 1. It says in this regarding Jesus, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Last time, 
Jesus, we see, going from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake. And so now he's going back to the same side. He's going back to Capernaum. Okay, his city at this point in time is not where he grew up. It's not Nazareth. His city now is where he set up shop, if you will. Uh, home base, ministry base is Capernaum up in the north, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So that's what's going on here. Then in verse 2 it says, And behold, something exciting Matthew wants us to know, And behold, some people brought to him, to Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed or a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, and I'm going to stop there just for a moment so you can capture it even better and understand what's happening. Jesus sees their faith. Well, if we look at the other gospel accounts, the other camera angles, if you will, this is the account where uh, this paralyzed man's friends, maybe family members too, they take him on a mat, they transport him to where Jesus is, they go up on the roof of the house, they dig a hole in the roof of the house, and they lower him down to Jesus. So when it says he saw their faith, he, he, he saw that they knew something about who Jesus was because of reputation, because of eyewitness, and they had confidence that Jesus could help. Okay? Kind of like the centurion that we learned about earlier. If you weren't here with us, the centurion was someone who had great faith in Jesus because he knew that Jesus didn't even have to come to his house. He knew enough about Jesus' power to know that if Jesus just said it, it would happen. And so again, this tells us Jesus sees their faith. That is their faith in him, Jesus, that he's able, he's willing, he's great. They're drawn to him. So Jesus is going to act. He said to the paralytic, take heart, be encouraged, my son, your sins are forgiven. And I hope at that point in time, you're, you're kind of doing a, a, a raised eyebrow. His friends did not bring him and go to great extremes and show their great commitment to trusting in Christ because they brought him there to have his sins forgiven. Right? They brought him there because he's paralyzed. They brought him there for physical healing, not for spiritual healing. But, and Jesus is going to get to that, but maybe we could say at this point in time, first things first. But we could also say that Jesus is purposely provocative. Jesus is purposely poking the bear, the bear being the religious leaders. He knows this is going to get a rise out of them, and this is going to provide him with an opportunity to show who he really is. It's masterful. It's wonderful. Your sins are forgiven. Now, here's my opportunity, and I'll mention it again and again this morning. I do it every week. Here's my opportunity to remind you that we had a huge hint in Matthew chapter 1 how we should read the whole gospel account. Remember, you should name him Jesus 121 because he will save his people from their sins. And here he is, forgiving sins. This is no surprise. This is expected. This is what he is up to first and foremost beyond the physical healing. And we're going to see in our text, the reason he does the physical healing is to show that he can do the spiritual healing. Not that both aren't important, but he's doing one to prove the other. I hope you're feeling drawn in. I'm feeling drawn in. It's rather interesting. At first, he ignores the physical needs. He won't ultimately, but he does it first. Let's keep going in verse 3. And behold, plot thickens, some of the scribes, uh, Bible experts, Bible scholars, given their lives to studying the Bible, uh, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. 
Not a word we use very often. It basically means to lie. But, but let's ratchet it up. In this context, and oftentimes in the Bible, if not, I don't want to say every time, always and never gets me in trouble. Lying about God. Right? If, if Jesus is a mere human being, son of a carpenter, for him to pronounce your sins are forgiven would be, would be blasphemy. The other gospel accounts tell us on purpose, this one doesn't mention the details, but the reason it would be inappropriate for Jesus if he's only the son of a carpenter to say your sins are forgiven is because God and God alone what? Forgive sins. Luke chapter 5 verse 21. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Matthew just assumes that we know that. If Jesus is only the son of the carpenter, this is horrific. But let's step back a little bit. Jesus is going to call them out as evil. The contrasting or complementary words are concepts, blasphemy with evil. Because likewise, to attribute to not attribute to God what is true of God would be evil. Jesus is, is, is proving and showing that he's not a mere mortal. Look, look there with me if you would. You'll see it in verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing their hearts, knowing what's inside, knowing what's going on, again, a supernatural kind of thing, said, why do you think evil, they're calling him a blasphemer, he's calling them evil, why do you think evil in your hearts? Then verse 5 gives a very challenging question. I hope you're challenged by it. For which is easier? There's going to be a test, so look at this carefully. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or say, rise and walk? Which is easier to say? Do, 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 do. No, I'll stop. I think the right answer, the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven. Because who can prove it? Apart from God, I can say your sins are forgiven and how can you objectively test whether or not it's true? You, you really can't. But for Jesus to say, you're healed, get up and go home, we're going to find out pretty fast if he's blowing smoke. We're going to find out pretty fast if he is a huckster, if he's not telling the truth. And what we're about to see is Jesus is going to do the physical healing to back up the more important part, which is the spiritual healing. Proof of the physical will be shown in the, proof of the spiritual will be shown in the physical. Let's go ahead and see. Verse 6. But that you may know, I've emboldened and underlined that as many times as I could, that you may know, okay? That you may know that the Son of Man, the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7, we looked at it last time, the Deliverer, the ultimate forever ruling and reigning, kind, gracious, powerful Messiah King, that you may know, you may have strong confidence, has authority on the earth to forgive sins, because that's the most important because he came to save his people from their sins. I said it again. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And I love the connection. And he rose. Jesus says it. It happens. 
That's the harder thing to prove in the there and then, therefore the harder thing to say. Jesus says it, and it's objectively proved for all to see. And he went home. Then when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. It's awesome. It's awesome because, as I keep saying, this was not done in some back room somewhere. This is done before eyewitnesses. This is done before the people to be able to see tangible, objective, verifiable. I know I say it all the time, but I'm going to keep doing it because he says that you may know. Happened before your very eyes on this day. And it's ultimately so that you can know that the Son of Man, the ultimate Messiah, not a tyrant, but the one who can forgive people of their sins. So good. So good. I'm, t- I'm here to tell you, he's the one you're looking for even if you're not looking. That you may know. It's fascinating to see that the people are afraid and that the fear leads to glorifying God. Seeing God is great. Let's do, do look at the very end of verse 7 because there's something tangible and significant here for us. Who had given such authority to men? They're afraid. They're glorifying God. God is great. God is significant. God is more significant than we are because God had given authority to men to do such things. The idea being No one can do this. No one can do this other than the unique one. The one who is really a man, Jesus, born of a virgin. So this authority has been given to men, given to human beings, but it's been given from the outside, from God supernaturally. This one who knows what people are thinking, he's not only the one who's human, he's also the one who's divine. He's the God-man. He's the unique one who could rule and reign forever. It's a significant text, actually, when it comes to the deity and humanity of Christ. He's one of us, but he also is from the outside. He's the eternal son who has the power to forgive sins. This is, this is, this is good mystery. I don't know how this works. And if you know how this works, I'll give you the microphone. Actually, I won't because I know you don't know how it works either. Mystery not as in contradiction. Mystery as in we have no category for this. And we shouldn't have a category for it because there should be only one God-man. And you go, one of us, but from the outside. He came to save His people from their sins. Draws us to worship. No category for this. Well, I... One more thing before we move on. Do do think in terms of forgiveness of sins. Um, Just uh, as a reminder, this is all part of a bigger context because Jesus is going to go and suffer uh, more fully than this. It'll come to its apex when he's betrayed, when he suffers and he's crucified and is then raised from the dead. Okay, So there's forgiveness in the atonement. This is preview of that. In other words, more has to happen. But he's able to do what he does now because of what is going to happen. Let's move on to the next one. I've got more Bible verses for you, but you look like you've had enough. So we're going to number two. I mean that in a good way. (laughs) 
Number two, the next historical account that's meant to impress us with Jesus. He's not a tyrant. He's actually a good kind of king that we would want to trust. And that's in the calling of Matthew. The calling of Matthew, or otherwise known in other accounts, as Levi. Okay, verse 9 says, As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, follow me. There's the command. And he rose and followed him. And I'm inviting you to notice the simplicity. Jesus said, follow me. And he followed. So note the simplicity and notice also the unspoken um, fact that there's authority involved. So in our last scene, it says there's authority. But throughout this whole thing, there's authority. Because when you say to someone, follow me, and they do, you respect their authority. You're drawn. Now, also notice to be further impressed with what's going on here, the fact that Matthew, as a tax collector, would be considered by his fellow Jews as a traitor. Okay? So he turns his back on his people to work for the Roman government, and the Roman government wants him to be the tax man. Okay? And as long as he gets a certain amount from the people, if he can get above and beyond, that will be his salary, let's say. And so they're, they're, they're known for being bad actors. They're known for being corrupt. They're known for being, in other words, a good synonym is traitor to their own people. So isn't it interesting that Jesus recruits someone who, if you were him, you probably wouldn't recruit if you're trying to impress the Jews. Okay? And Jesus has been doing this centurion fishermen, now Matthew. Oh, there's, there's more involved because tax collectors were known to have more money than ordinary people. So he would have been, if he's like most tax collectors, he's got a better house than other people have. In other words, they're, 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 they're people of means. And so I find that important because Jesus says not to someone who's down and out on their luck, more than likely, not to someone who's having a really hard time making ends meet, not to, not to someone who doesn't have anything better to do. He says to Matthew, follow me, and Matthew, the man of means, because he's a tax collector, follows him. Jesus is drawing all different kinds of people. It's impressive. It's impressive. And we're going to see that there's a party involved in this following. It's more explicitly stated in the other gospel accounts, but Matthew's going to throw a party. So it's not like Matthew, you know, Jesus has this tractor beam kind of calling. I think he does, but that's for another conversation. You know, he says, follow me. And all of a sudden, you know, he has to. I mean, this, this is not Matthew having, having an Eeyore moment. Okay? You know what I mean? When my kids were little, they had the little keyboard. And when they're really little, and they had to learn the colors. And when you push the, the Eeyore, the Winnie the Pooh keyboard, you push the Eeyore one, it would go, gray. Ray. Right? Because Eeyore. Ray. It's just like a downer. It's like a total downer. I'm worse than cup half empty kind of thing. I mean, this is not Matthew. This isn't what Matthew's up to. And again, I want to say it that way to you so you get the idea. He's not bemoaning this because he's going to take a cut in salary. He sees the value of Christ. He sees the significance of who Jesus is. He's drawn to him and he's drawn to him happily. Okay? With joy in his heart, he's going to invite all of his tax collector friends over and all of his sinful friends over to meet Jesus. My life's been changed. This is awesome. The one who came to save his people from their sins and he's dealing with us. This is great. 
Makes me excited. So we move on. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, kind of an awkward way of speaking. We don't speak that way. Uh, I think it's meant to capture the awkwardness that they're not just sharing in a meal together. They don't just happen to be at the same McDonald's together. Um, they're, they're reclining at table. The point being, and, and they're not there as um, people of different socioeconomic status, statuses. It's not there. They're not there as servants, in other words. Reclining at table, peers, friends. We're here to relax. We're here to enjoy one another's company. We're here to show care and concern for one another. And so that's what happens here. Let's keep going. All you self-control and keep moving. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, get this, many tax collectors, many traders, and sinners, those who overtly violate God's law and are known for doing so. Remember, 1 John says, sin is lawlessness. They have a reputation for that. Came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. He's with bad actors. And you can just practically see, right, the Pharisees and the religious leaders licking their chops. Just waiting to get in on this one. If you're trying to impress the Jewish leaders at this time, you're blowing it. But Jesus is up to something. He always is. He's in charge. Go ahead and look with me if you would at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat? Again, not just casual dining, recline at table eat. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? According to one resource, rabbinic regulation requires that if you're even in the same room with tax collectors, you have to declare yourself to be spiritually unclean. And here is Jesus. Friendship, care, concern, mercy, kindness. Not a tyrant. The one who can forgive welcomes those who need to be forgiven. It's a great picture. And they're scandalized by it. They're not asking to have an answer. They're asking as an accusation. Verse 12 says, But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And you all know what that means, right? It's pretty pretty easy to understand. As a general rule, you don't go to the doctor unless you have something wrong with you. And these religious leaders don't see themselves as having something spiritually wrong with them, so they wouldn't go to the great physician. They think they're just fine. They're the leaders of Israel, after all. They're the religiously respected ones. They're part of God's chosen nation. But get this, you, you, you want to make sure you don't miss this. How about verse 13? Things get really, really spicy here. Go and learn what this means, Jesus says. Go and learn what this means. You have homework. I'm sending you home with your tails between your legs. This isn't how Jesus acts to those who come to him who need mercy and grace, but those who are trying to keep them from knowing the truth. Jesus says, I've got an assignment for you, buddy. Kind of idea. Go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Hmm. And by the way, the reason I read into it like that, sends them home with their tail between their legs and all that kind of stuff, I'm not trying to over-embellish, but they're the ones who are supposed to be Scripture scholars. And so he's calling them to go home and read their Bibles and figure out what it means. So it, it's meant, it, it for sure has a sting to it. Now, he's essentially saying the same thing, right? If you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. If you are righteous, you don't need to be forgiven. You don't need to repent. Okay? That's essentially what he's saying. And, and we know, we know, we know, Psalm 14, uh, Romans 3, 10, there's no one who's righteous. No, not one. No human being who is a son or daughter of Adam is a perfect law keeper, is a perfect lover of God and lover of neighbor. It's the fact that these guys think they are. They think they're God's people because they do the right thing all the time. And the fact of the matter is they don't. And so they don't see their need. Contrast with Matthew and company. They know. They know. And where the plot gets really interesting is he came to save his people from their sins. And now we're starting to wonder just who are his people? Who would have thought it would be Matthew? Who would have thought it would be those who are known for being public law violators? And now Jesus is with them and it looks a lot like they're the ones who are his people. It's counterintuitive. It's a, it's a surprise. It's like, what? It's no wonder they crucified him. Now, here's, here's where we need to back up just a little bit. I need you to see something that helps the plot to thicken. You don't want to miss this. Where he says in verse 13, at the beginning, I desire mercy. Or, uh, go, go and learn what this means. He quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy to do the right thing from a sincere heart. Care, concern, love. Not sacrifice the external religious go through the motion stuff. Because the fact of the matter is God actually wanted him to do the right external things too. But if you don't, if you don't do the right mercy things, internal category, the other stuff is worthless and meaningless. In fact, it's, it's harmful. Okay? But here's, let me, let me, Jesus is not quoting this verse willy-nilly. Just, you know, it just happened to come into his mind because last week on a sales call, he was in someone's office and they had a, they were Christian and they had a Christian calendar and it had Hosea 6.6 or at least a portion of it out of context. And it just happened to come to Jesus' mind and so he quotes it. You get my idea. Jesus knows the context of Hosea is what I'm saying. He, he knows what the whole thing is about. And so when New Testament authors quote verses... They're not just quoting them as if they're on some kind of calendar from parables, okay? They, 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 they know the whole thing. They know what it's all about. Theologians say it, it, that, that little statement carries a whole lot of freight, okay? There's a whole payload. And I would encourage you, if you have young children, not to have family devotions in Hosea anytime soon. It is graphic. It is lambasting. It uses the word whore I don't know how many times. 
I'll only say it once. I mean, it, it is something else. It, it is really something else. So when Jesus says, you know what you religious leaders need to do? You need to go home and read Hosea. You, you think you got it together? You've got, you've got it together like the people Hosea addressed had it together. Dun, 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 dun. They're going to crucify Jesus for this kind of stuff. They really are. It's really quite staggering. In Hosea 6.6, 6, I'll go ahead and read it, and I'll read 6.7 as well. Um, promise no bad words, um, so you can just let your kids hear. <laughs> for I desire, this is what God says, for I desire steadfast love or mercy, depending on how you want to translate it, that the internal do the right thing, that's what God wants, uh, and not sacrifice. But he does want sacrifice. It's just not, that's what, not what he wants first and foremost. If you don't have the former, you don't really have the efficacy of the latter, if that makes sense. And then it goes on to say, the knowledge of God. I desire the knowledge of God, not, not idolatry, rather than burnt offerings. Then 7 says, but like Adam, he's addressing Old Testament Israel, Hosea is, he says to them, like Adam, as in Adam in the Garden of Eden, like Adam, they transgressed, Israel transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So what I want you to see is Jesus saying to them, go read Hosea and it's talking about you. Here's what's happening. Adam was in a covenantal relationship with God, a formal relationship where he wasn't a peer, he wasn't free to do whatever he wanted to do and he does the wrong thing and we're in this mess. Then we have God, not, uh, God moving forward to the nation of Israel Okay, and they do the same thing, a similar thing, Hosea 6, 7. And now first century Jews, and Jesus is saying, you're no better. You're no better than they are. Hosea 2, by the way, says that God calls not my people, my people. That's offensive too. Even Gentiles. So when Jesus comes to save his people from their sins and he's saving people like Matthew and the paralytic and he's saving people, Jews and Gentiles, sinners, his people hmm, are maybe different than we thought they were going to be if we're the Jews and Jesus says, go home and read Hosea. It's just, it's spicy stuff. It's big drama. It's really big drama. Maybe let's do that one more time. Adam, Hosea 6, 7, violates the covenant as a representative. Israel violates the covenant, Mosaic covenant, as a representative people. Now, ultimately, Jesus, we're going to talk about new covenant in just a little while because it's in our text. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus will say, this is the new covenant in my blood. Okay? So we're going to go old covenant, passing away. Jesus will fulfill the obligations of it, but it's passing away new covenant where we look to the one who did all the right things in his own blood. We look to him to save us is what's going on here. Hope you tracked with me. Hopefully that helps you and encourages you. It certainly encourages me to start connecting dots better than perhaps we've connected them in the past. 
Who invented clocks anyway? I'm going to say one more thing. We better move on for the sake of time. Let's go to the third. Let's go to the third point of instruction, uh, or excuse me, the third historical account, learning about Jesus, that he's the one whose side we want to be on. He's not against us like he's against manipulating false teachers. He's actually for us. That's why he silences them. Number three, we have the instruction of John's disciples. Jesus is going to instruct John's disciples, and he's going to instruct them in fasting. But actually what he's doing is he's instructing them in about who he is. Okay, here we go. This will be fun. Promise. 14 says, Then the disciples of John, that would be John the baptizer or John the Baptist. Okay? Then the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? What's the implied answer? The implied answer is no. Now, we don't say bridegroom, just think groom, okay? If the groom is there, and literally, if the groom is at his wedding with his wedding party, you know, the guys who are going to stand up with him, if he's, up, if, he, if he's there with his friends, if they're all together, is it right to act like it's a funeral? You go, no, that's like the dumbest thing ever. I mean, I've seen some pretty interesting things at weddings, but I have never seen that. At a wedding... You're excited. This is great. This is one of the best days of your life. We're so excited for you. You're getting married. This is wonderful. This is extraordinary. We're going to celebrate. That's the idea. That's the idea. And Jesus is using that. Jesus is the groom. Jesus has come for his people, for the bride. And so when he's there, they shouldn't be like, great, right? This isn't the downer time. How dumb would that be? That would be ridiculous. It would be all wrong. I was preaching. One, one, one weekend I had like four weddings and one funeral to do or something like that. And back and forth between here and Lincoln and all this. And, and it, at one point in time I go to do the wedding and I turn to the funeral page and it was like, whoops. Okay. I, mean, I have lots of stories like that. It wouldn't make any sense. It'd be crazy. And so Jesus is stressing the point. It would be crazy for my disciples to do to be doing anything but feasting. Okay? And remember, they were just at the feast with Matthew. So the, the other disciples, they're fasting. John's disciples and the Pharisees and Jesus' disciple, d- disciples. His disciples, they're feasting because he's with them. Let's keep going. Verse 15 goes on to say, the, the days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom, we would just say groom, is taken away. Notice it's taken away. It's not that he will leave. He's taken away. Jesus is the most self-aware person who's ever lived. He knows he's going to be taken away because he's going to be betrayed, denied, unjustly tried, mocked, and crucified. Okay? A day is coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Right? Then it's like, oh no! What has happened? Where is our Lord? Where have they taken Him? It's grief. It's, it's bad. You don't want to eat. Just think of it in those terms. But this is not the time for that. The only reason you would think it's the time for that is because you don't have eyes to see that He's the groom. That He's the groom. Okay, now, 
We're going to end verses 16 and 17, and we're going to hear about old and new. And there's no question in my mind that he's pre-anticipating or anticipating, I should say, old and new covenant kind of talk. Uh, and it's similar to what, why he quoted Hosea. Verse 16 says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So, how many of you learn how to sew from your dad? Do I have to turn in my man card? Um, does my dad have to turn in his? I learned how to sew from my dad because we had old boats and old boat tarps. And what do you do? Come springtime after the long winter in South Dakota, you have to get the boat tarp patches. And they were probably not pre-washed. They were probably pre-treated. So they wouldn't shrink. Okay? But the idea is the same. You have to have one that's the, the, the appropriate thing. It's, it's pre-treated. So when you put it on and you sew it on there, it's not going to... Uh, shrink when rain comes and sun comes and then it would just tear the boat tarp that's the idea okay you don't take the new and put it on the old or the new will just ruin the old and you have a worse problem that's what he's getting at here and theologically what he's saying in context and flow of things i jesus didn't come as the new to be put on the old the days of the old are coming to an end okay that's why he is going to say later, this is the blood of my, this is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant era is passing away. Mosaic era passing away. Jesus will fulfill the obligations, but he's not there to help it and make it better, right? Adam blew it. Israel blows it. Jesus doesn't come on the scene and say, I think they just need a little more instruction. I'm just going to help them out and they can do it. No, new I'm going to do it all. And if it's new, by the way, the Old Testament talks about a new covenant coming. The Old Testament talks about an old covenant. This isn't out of nowhere. But in the book of Hebrews, it says that when the new comes, the old is made. Anybody know the word? It starts with an O. Obsolete says it two times. Done. Complete. Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Okay? He's not just trying to patch up the old covenant mosaic economy. He's actually ushering in a new era. Verse 17 says, we're going to wrap it up now. 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So you put the new wine in an old wine skin and the fermentation process happens, experts tell us, and there's expansion, perhaps contraction, I don't know, but there's movement and it just breaks the old ones because they're brittle. Jesus theologically is making the point, I'm not here to fix the old covenant world. I'm here to, to usher in something that it anticipated through types and shadows and I'm the substance and it belongs to me. I am the Passover lamb. I'm the one. I am the temple. I'm the end game. I'm the ultimate, which again is why they will crucify him. Let's end with uh, acknowledging this. Early on, Jesus does what he does, and he says he's doing what he does so that they would know he has the power to forgive sins. So please leave today knowing, having seen Jesus in action, that he has the power to forgive sins. Let's also know that he is willing to forgive sins, okay? And that he's a savior who's not a tyrant. He's a king who's not a tyrant, but one who protects, provides for, and cares for as a good shepherd.
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he didn't come to fix something that has shown itself to be broken again and again. Thank you for the fact that he came to fulfill the law and then to establish the new and better covenant in his blood. May we be uh, worshipers of him and not anything else. In Jesus' name, amen.